Hi everyone, thank you for joining us on Eagle Eye today. Every week we have exclusive interviews with your favorite BC student athletes, professors, alumni, and more. Make sure to follow The Heights on Instagram and Facebook to recommend guests you'd like to hear from. You can catch up on the latest headlines on The Heights Facebook and Twitter pages every Monday. Today's exciting because we have a special guest, uh, Dr. Welkin Johnson, um, a professor and chair of the biology department at Boston College. Uh, Dr. Johnson, do you want to give a, a little more background to your job here at BC um, and just your general background? Yeah, I guess I can start with the general. So I'm I'm sitting in my basement in Lexington, Massachusetts on a very cold day. <laughs> It'd be nice if we we're meeting in person. Hopefully, hopefully we'll have a normal semester coming up. Um, uh, I, I sort of grew up all over the country, but I went to mostly grew up in California. So I went to college at UC Berkeley. Uh, worked at UC San Francisco for a little while, and then I came to Boston in uh, 1991 for graduate school at Tufts Medical School. And then from there, I was postdoc and then faculty at Harvard Medical School. And about 10, 10 11 years ago, um, I was invited to Boston College to give a seminar. And Tom Childs, who's now the vice provost of research, um, called me shortly after that and asked me if I'd be interested in coming to Boston College. And I said, yes, of course. Uh, that turned into sort of a year of interview and negotiation. And then I came here uh, and I haven't regretted that decision. It's, it's a wonderful place uh, to be faculty and to do science. Uh, I guess the other part of your question is what do I do here? Is that the? Yeah. Um, so I'm, um, so I, I run a research lab in the biology department. Um, the students, postdocs, and undergraduates and technicians in my lab all work on retroviruses. So probably most of my research has come out of the HIV AIDS field, um, another major pandemic virus that came, came through before I went to college, just before, um, and then other retroviruses. So we sort of study how viruses and their hosts and host cells interact. Um, and then about six or seven years ago, uh, I took over as chair of the biology department. So I also have a, a administrative role, I guess, on top of the faculty role. So, I mean, obviously BC with, you know, COVID, they've had to take over this testing process. And do you know, like how that process has like been put out and how, how it just works like daily? How, how, how tough is it to like maintain that uh, consistent, consistently? Um, <laughs> it's a good question. I, we've definitely, uh, had to learn as we went, like most people in the country. Uh, we, we're a lot better at it now. I think in the beginning, nobody knew what to expect. I, I don't know if you, um, I don't know if you remember, but the decision in the spring of 2020, right after spring break, there was a sudden decision. The campus went virtual for the last part of that semester. And we basically started um, almost immediately um, trying to figure out and plan for a return to an open campus in September of, of 2020. And that was um, um, a lot more complicated than even I expected because to do COVID testing, there's all kinds of you know privacy and data security issues, infrastructure issues and things. So that really took us um, working really hard throughout that summer. Uh, to get everything up and implemented by the time the semester rolled around. Um, in fact, the the on-campus, so there's two testing services, right? Boston College um, uses the Broad Institute for large-scale surveillance testing. 
uh, and I don't know if your listeners are aware of the Broad Institute, but it's this it's this quasi academic institute in Cambridge, uh, started largely by Eric Lander and, and his colleagues, and it's it's an amazing place. And what they excel at is very high throughput scientific analyses, so they can screen probably hundreds of thousands of samples a day. So along with several other universities, we contracted with the Broad for surveillance. But um, at that time, in that summer leading up to the, the fall of 2020, uh, no one knew where this pandemic was going to go. And it was not clear that testing would be easy to get a hold of. So, so the university uh, leadership, President Leahy uh, and his advisory team had the foresight to understand that we should probably create our own in-house capacity for testing because we really had no idea what was going to happen in the fall, but we knew that very frequent testing would have to be Sorry, would have to be part of that plan. Um, I, don't, I don't know how I could go into a lot of detail, but the so so a lot of it was was really trying to learn as much as we possibly could in the three or four months before the semester started. Um, I'd say this year has been easier because now we know what to expect. So even though we've gone um, last year, we, I don't know if you guys you guys are what year are you? I'm a freshman. Oh, uh, sophomore. Sophomore. So last year, there was social distancing um, and masks and sort of um, de-densified classrooms. This year, we had pretty much normal campus, uh, except that everybody was vaccinated. So even though it was a very different campus, we knew how the virus would behave. We knew from last year that we're, we were going to see spikes uh, in positivity after three-day weekends, after football games after party weekends and things like that, like clockwork. And, and the same thing, even with vaccination, when we saw positives this year, it was almost the same sort of time points in the semester when it happened. So this year we, we knew what to expect. Um, I don't, I could keep going, but maybe I'll let you guys ask more questions. I'm an academic, so I can talk forever without breathing. So oh, yeah. no, please no. feel free to interrupt with questions. Yeah, no, no, we, we love to hear you speak. Our, our questions are just kind of to guide it, but um... Yeah, I mean, I was looking at the website uh, yesterday. I mean, it's crazy to believe there's been like 150,000 tests performed just this fall. I mean, I couldn't imagine just as a student, like conducting that on a daily basis. Um, I think there's like around 1,000 to 100 or uh, 1,500 test samples recorded daily. Um, More. Yeah. Uh, is, is that difficult to manage? Uh, because I know you have to basically turn them out uh, like within a couple hours every night. Um, how is that kind of process and, and how have you managed that? Uh, well, part of the answer is it's it can become, uh, boring is not the word, repetitive, I guess. So once you have the protocols in place and we have a lot of, there's a lot of technology now for handling um, large numbers of samples at a time, for example. So the even though we're a small scale lab compared to the Broad, we can do about 380 samples in one run. So, so from the time that a, a, a swab is delivered to our lab to the time we have the result, maybe takes three or four hours to get 380 of those done. So working with people with overlapping shifts, it's possible that if we do three runs a day, then you're talking about more than a thousand a day. Um, the, the, I guess the, the plus and the minus of it, the plus is be, largely because of 
pre-COVID things like the HIV pandemic, there was a lot of technology been developed that made this a lot easier to implement, right? So even though nobody in my lab or actually none of us had heard of, of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 um, prior to the end of 2019, almost all the assays and technology that are being used were assays and technology was just lifted over from the assays of other viruses like HIV or flu viruses and things like that. Um, so maybe the short answer is it's, it's hard work, but it's repetitive. Yeah. Boring. Yeah. You, you talked a little bit about before how like BC this year, it's been more, way more normal per se than it was um, like last year with, cause this year, no, no Mac, no mask mandate, more in-person classes. Can you go into like a little bit behind BC's decision or I guess what you would think the decision would be with like us not having a mask mandate or having more in-person classes? Because I know some other universities, universities and colleges have more like strict uh, mandates and BC is more on like the lesser side of that. So can you just go into a little bit behind that decision? A quick editor's note, this episode with Dr. Johnson was recorded before Boston College re-implemented an official mask mandate on January 5th. According to BC's new COVID-19 policies, the university will institute a temporary masking requirement on campus whenever physical distancing, distancing cannot be maintained, lasting from Friday, January 14th, corresponding with the return of students in the second semester through Monday, January 31st, 2022. In addition, those who test positive for COVID-19, regardless of vaccination or their booster status, must remain in isolation for five days, whether having symptoms or not. Um, with a day of the positive test counting as day zero, and must wear a mask indoors and outdoors for five days after release from isolation when unable to maintain appropriate physical distancing. For those identified as a close contact of someone who tests positive for COVID-19, uh, those who are fully vaccinated will not have to quarantine unless they have symptoms and must wear, uh, must wear a mask indoors and outdoors for 10 days when un unable to maintain physical distancing. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I got to start with two disclaimers, really. So I'm, uh, I'm not uh, senior administration. So I don't, I don't have access to all the information that has gone into decisions. That's, I don't, that's above my pay grade, as they say. So I don't know everything that went into the decision. So I have to make educated guesses. Um, and the second disclaimer is I'm faculty, so I'm not an entirely independent opinion, either. Mm -hmm. Um, so those two things being said, uh, the um, I think the decision to try and have a normal semester without a mask mandate actually made a lot of sense to me. And I, I think it's worked out more. There were no surprises this semester. Um, I think uh, any virologist you would talk to would probably have predicted more or less what happened on our campus this semester, given that um, we're talking about a community, at least on the student level, that's largely people that are 18 to 22 living on campus. Um, and given the decision um, to, to mandate vaccination across the entire campus, students, faculty, and staff. And, and the reason I think we were maybe different than some other institutions or universities is the, has to do with the, the, what's a big difference between numbers that sound very similar. So the Boston College campus is probably upwards of 99.7% vaccinated, right? Which means that only one in 200 people might be unvaccinated. Another campus, if they say they're 95% vaccinated, that sounds like a high number, but it actually means one in 20 people 
different vaccines. So it's an order of magnitude difference. Um, and I think Boston caught the, the achievement of ensuring that the entire campus, with the exception of people who had me medical or religious exemptions, was vaccinated was, was quite extraordinary, actually. But I think given those circumstances, um, and given that it is really important across the country and across the world that we start thinking of this as an endemic virus, that's something we're going to have to deal with going forward. I think it is important. This was an important step towards getting back to a new normal, a normal that includes having the possibility that we'll have um, SARS-CoV-2 and maybe other coronaviruses to deal with in the future. Yeah, I know, um, like, especially now, like, uh, with the holidays coming up, it's it's grown increasingly important to kind of keep the the regular or the yeah. just normal life. Um, because really, anything can kind of shift this so quickly. And um, it's, it's, yeah, it's really interesting uh, to see how BC's handle it. Um, but I guess getting uh, in, back into like the testing, um, how do you go about identifying um like if a student has tested positive for covid um i know like the pcr tests are like the um basically called like the gold standard of tests um what like what would a pcr test um like specifically identify in, in a sample that's a good question can i back up just for a quick second because you also in your preamble you made an important point about how quickly things change yeah, definitely. I think, I think another important piece of, of this past year and a half and going forward is that the all the folks on campus involved have meet very, very frequently, at least once a week for the last almost two years now. Um, and we're kind of in that situation now, right? We, we have this Omicron-driven SARS-CoV-2 surge, and it's very strange timing, right? We just finished the semester. The surge is coming along. Um, some people think that the surge might already be starting to go away too, but we have to, you know, we've got about two weeks until the semester starts. So keeping a constant eye on that, um, we're meeting freak very frequently now to keep discussing that. We're always with the idea that if we have to change something or pivot or something like that, we we can be ready to do that. Um, so your question was a was a technical one about PCR. Is that the um, yeah, um, just like how like a PCR test would work or like how you would kind of identify um, like a positive test. So the, the <laughs> you'll have to stop me so I don't go into too much technical detail. So the, the way the testing on campus is set up, the, the testing that comes through uh, our lab in the biology department um, is students go, to, uh, if they're part of surveillance, they go down to the MAC courts, a swab is taken, the swab is delivered to our lab. We also will get students if they were uh, symptomatic and walked into university health services or if they were contact traced, a lot of times those samples will come to us too so that they can get a same day answer. Um, so what happens, I, I don't know how much you want to know. So the swab comes into the lab um, and then there's a team in the lab that will basically add a buffer to the test tube that has a swab in it, that that the cotton tip that they stick up your nose, in the mac cords, is soaked in a buffer so that the vi any virus that's sticking to that will come off in the buffer. And then we have a semi-automated. We have a set of machines that can extract the viral genetic material from 96 of those samples at a time, in in I think probably less than half an hour. 
or something like that. So batches of 96 samples um, will extract the viral genetic material. Uh, in the case of coronaviruses like SARS-CoV-2, that's an RNA molecule that has that encodes the viral genes. And then the PCR test that, that we uh, decided to implement was one developed by Thermo Fisher, which is headquartered here in Massachusetts. Um, their PCR test had an emergency use authorization through the FDA at the time, um, at the at the summer of 2020, it was already authorized to be used as a test. So that's the one we adopted. We basically set it up as exactly as they uh, had devised it in our lab with help from people at Thermo Fisher. Um, so we combine those sets of 96 samples. We gather them until we have 380 some, 384 about. Uh, those go into a, a plate that's a, a little bigger than maybe a deck of cards. So it'll be a flat tray that's got 384 very tiny holes or wells in it. Um, I'm holding up my hands, even though I know listeners probably can't see me doing this, but if you picture a small tray, 384 very tiny wells in it, then each student, each of those wells will have a student sample in it. A little bit of liquid containing um, uh, extracted from the nasal sample. If there was virus in there, then there'd be viral genetic material in there. And the PCR, um, test that we use is sent up to detect three different viral genes, right? So the genes, the names don't matter, but it's ORF1A, N, and S. S is the gene that codes the spike protein that everybody hears about in the news. Um, and the reason for testing for three separate genes is to make sure that we can always detect the virus. So even if one of those genes has a mutation that interferes with the test, we can still detect the presence of the virus because of the other two genes. How would you say, I mean, you said you've worked with um, like HIV AIDS in the past. How was like testing for that disease different from COVID or has COVID pre presented like any specific challenges with the way you have to test? Yeah, it is, it's, is, there is a difference. So you can use PCR to test for both. Now, just as a side note, when I was starting graduate school in the early 90s, the first time I ever heard Tony Fauci uh, Dr. Fauci give a talk was he was one of the his and some other scientists were among the first people that used PCR and figured out that people with HIV infection um, during what we thought of as a long latent phase when there was no apparent infection they were able to detect and tell us that healthy people still had replicating virus and they did that with PCR by the way um, so I'm sorry your question was um the difference, the main difference between testing for something like HIV and a respiratory like virus like SARS-CoV-2 or flu is HIV doesn't replicate in the respiratory system. So to test, to do a PCR test for HIV, you have to draw a blood sample. So it's, it's more invasive. It would be much harder to do on a large scale like we do with a respiratory virus. That makes sense, um, yeah. Yeah, a very convenient thing about flu and SARS-CoV-2 is that you can do a nasal swab and get a reliable test from that. I mean, it's it's so reliable now that that I have kits in the house. You can you can buy kits at CVS and do it yourself. Yeah, yeah. that's that's kind of crazy. I know, like my my mom got a bunch for like Christmas and stuff, so it was definitely yeah. good to have like right like even like at at your local CVS, which is really great. So. We, we've used ours now, and I'm thinking of buying more. I, I suspect if anyone saves one at some point in the distant future, it'll be a collector's item. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully they'll become ancient one day. Yeah, we yeah. don't have to use them so much, but um, I guess uh, also the booster shots uh, just became available uh, this fall. Um, how do you uh, see them as essential to stopping the the spread? Um, like similar to, um, I guess the the original two vaccinations. Yeah, that actually that's a really important question. That there's a lot of debate about that now. The the booster shots absolutely will help prevent the spread of the virus. I mean, um, and I think it's they're important because they can help prevent the spread of the virus. And I think they do give people an extra layer of, of comfort, right? That, that, that this is going to help. But I always think there's a caveat to that, that, that the, the rollout of the boosters have led some to, to misunderstand that the original vaccine is still not effective than it is. I think even people who are fully vaccinated, it's the vaccine, the original vaccine still does a very good job of preventing serious illness and the hospitalization. For example, the, the, um, in, in other words, I think as the boat boosters rolled out, I think there was some misinterpretation of the data in the press that that meant people were vaccinated were no longer protected. Um, and part of the reason for that is assaying so a good vaccine produces two kinds of immune response. One is an antibody response, antibodies which can glom onto virions, free virions, uh, can glom onto the virions and prevent them from infecting cells. But the second thing a good vaccine does is it induces uh, killer T cells or cytotoxic T lymphocytes. You can call them either one. And these are cells that are, uh, once they've been trained to recognize a viral protein, they can recognize and destroy any infected cells, right? So even though the antibody response starts to drop after vaccination, um, there's probably a long-lived T cell response that continues to, even though it won't necessarily stop people from getting infected, it will keep people healthy. It will keep people out of the hospital. You can think of T cells like a bomb sniffing dog, right? It's, you take a little bit of the explosive substance, you teach the dog how to smell it, you can send it into a building that can locate the bomb so it can be inactivated. That's that's the beauty of vaccines, actually. Long after the vaccine is gone from your body and there's no trace of the vaccine left in you, you have the memory in your immune response, a completely natural memory to the viral protein that can go on doing its job for months and possibly years after you're vaccinated. That's just a little, mm. little preaching to the choir, probably, but the, the importance of vaccines. So, I mean, if you talked about like the misconception, like that with the booster, like the original vaccine isn't effective, but obviously that's not true. So if the original vaccine is still like pretty effective, should like colleges like BC or in general, should there be mandates with the booster if the original vaccine is, is still works pretty well? Yeah, because I, I, I'm trying to distinguish between two things. So good, the vaccine uh, probably does a very good job of preventing serious illness okay right but but we're seeing across the country we're seeing that even vaccinated people can still get back infected especially with this omicron variant it seems like it can infect vaccinated individuals and so the important thing to remember is the vaccine isn't just to at this stage in a pandemic 
the vaccine serves two purposes. It's to protect you, but it's also to stop this virus from spreading further in the human population, right? And that's where, in my opinion, so I can't speak for the university again, in my opinion, the, the role of a booster vaccine in, in this battle is actually more to try and stem as much possible the forward transmission of the virus. Okay, Be, Because even, even if you have a variant like Omicron, which sounds like it's probably not as, um, not as pathogenic, I guess, as other variants, if it spreads better, then if you have more and more people infected, then the probability of somebody getting badly sick still goes up. So at this point in the pandemic, you still want to do everything you can to try and stem the spread of the virus. And that, that's where the boosters would come in. I mm -hmm. am hoping, I like to think that it's not something that we have to do very frequently beyond this. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Like, do you think these boosters or like COVID vaccines is going to become like a yearly thing, like the flu shot? Or is it just like you hope you said we want to stop the spread. So if the spread is eventually stopped, we wouldn't have to do that. I, I, I think it's possible that, that we will have to continue to vaccinate like the flu shot, um, but not as frequently as we're doing, right? right? This booster is coming six months after the initial vaccination. The hope would be that this might settle into something like the flu shot where every year, or maybe every couple of years, uh, if there's new variants starting to circulate, they might have to develop a booster of some kind. I, it's really actually kind of hard to say at this point, but the, the good news is what we know from this pandemic now is that the global scientific community uh, knows how to deal with this kind of thing. I mean, they had to scramble, but we had a lot of knowledge in place that made this pandemic a lot less worse than it could have been. Um, and actually the, the, you know, the whole network of people that are involved in identifying flu strains and predicting and preparing the flu vaccine, right? All that infrastructure, all that knowledge can be, now be applied to other viruses like this coronavirus. And it, I guess the third thing would be the, these mRNA vaccines um, probably are bringing in a whole new generation of how vaccination is done. In the past, vaccination was very sort of empirical guesswork. And now, now it can be very precise it can be scaled up very fast it could probably be adapted to almost any any kind of um respiratory virus at least I'm, I'm sure these companies are already developing mrna vaccines for flu and other things like that also uh i guess the the cdc is um like recently said that um like isolation time for uh quarantining uh when you test positive uh it's reduced to five days now um instead of like the original 10 days um, or two weeks. Um, I guess, like, what are your uh, general thoughts on that? And uh, do you think like BC will implement that five days instead of 10 days or um, like how effective will that be? Um, yeah, I, BC has largely throughout this whole thing taken the guidance, whatever the guidance is that comes down through CDC and, and the local and state departments of public health. And the, the trend there seems to be that people are going to adopt the five days. So I have to make clear the distinction between isolation and quarantine, that what they've done is they've reduced the time of isolation to five days. Now, quarantine is a separate thing. Quarantine is you might have been exposed and you need to, you need to stay separate until you know for sure. But 
the guidance is about isolation specifically. I don't think it's a bad idea. I think especially, again, in a, in a heavily vaccinated and now probably heavily boosted community like Boston College, I really don't see any reason why somebody should have to stay in isolation beyond four or five days unless they unless they're very symptomatic or having complications or something like that. Um, and again, I think it's it's more towards getting us back towards normal. It's interesting. I, I think this flew under the radar for a lot of people, except maybe students living in dorms. But this past semester, we probably had much more symptomology and disease coming from flu infections and strep and things like that than we did from SARS-CoV-2, even though there may have been similar levels of the two kinds of viruses. I think flu had a greater impact on us in mm -hmm. terms of symptoms than, than SARS-CoV-2 did. Yeah, I mean, with it seems like, you know, the CDC, 10 days to five days now, more and more, everything seems to be back to normal. But I mean, there's been a big question, especially in like the sports industry, is if like we should continue to test people who are asymptomatic. So if you look at BC's testing, you know, every week you'll, it's random, but a bunch of people, you have to get tested even if you don't have any symptoms. At what point does BC like, like pivot from that and not like not test students who are asymptomatic and only test people who, who report symptoms? Is that something that we would see in the near future? Or do you think at least for the rest of the semester, there would continue to be tests just for the general uh, student population? I suspect that for the the bulk of this semester will probably continue to test quite frequently. Um, we don't, Boston College, it, it's, it's interesting because we don't test nearly as frequently as some of our neighboring campuses do. I'd say the average student maybe gets tested once every week or two um, at, at the highest point. Um, and, and yet we've had very similar numbers to other universities. That seems to have been effective. So with that as a starting point, if we monitor the pandemic, if we monitor what's going on in the community in Newton and the state, I think the decision to ramp that down will, will just, it'll be based on the numbers. It's very easy to ramp down testing. You don't have to get a lot of things in place to start easing off of it, if, if it makes sense to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, because just like looking at, just an example, like BC football, they had a they had a bowl game, I think a week and a half ago, yeah. it got canceled because BC is like continued to, you know, test their players and test their teams. But other schools like like the college football like playoffs happened this past week in like Alabama or Georgia, they're not they're not doing mass testing. So even if those players had it, they the games like still went on. So just interesting to see how like different areas of just there were different schools take a different approach. Yeah, I guess I don't I don't know. Um, I, I guess at this moment, I, I'm still in favor of, of a significant level of testing because the, mm -hmm. the frustrating thing for a virologist is just knowing that with the pandemic doesn't have to be at the level it's at. You know, if people would cooperate, if people would take the vaccinations, if, mm -hmm. if people would cooperate with the testing, you know, you can you can certainly have blunted this. I don't know if we could ever get rid of the virus, but we could definitely, there's definitely room for improvement, right? And so I always yeah. feel a little bit cautious. I, I'm worried about, um, you know, leaders and politicians sort of are in a sort of a pressure point, right? 
the pressure to make people safe and the pressure to let people get back to normal. And I think a lot of times those decisions sometimes possibly are premature. I, I for one, think at least going into the beginning of the semester, uh, we should be testing at least at the level that we were last semester until we know for sure that, that we're out of this surge and that things are improving. I, I am, however, optimistic that we are headed in that direction. That's good. So That's good. I don't know, you can call me back in a year if, if everything, <laughs> if all hell is broke loose and things have gotten worse, but I, I'm pretty optimistic that things are getting better. Yeah, um, and I know, like you said, it, it's so hard to predict, but um, I guess like, where do you see um, like, I guess the university taking COVID protocols in the future? Like, is this, are we gonna be like testing for, um, or like slowing down testing in the future or is it just kind of gonna diminish eventually or how, how do you see it, I guess? I, I'm not phrasing it correctly. Hey, so I don't, I actually don't know what administration will decide to do myself. I, I could imagine that we'll probably, um, it would probably be a deliberate stepping down or phasing out of testing is my guess. Um, and again, unless, unless the tide turns on the pandemic somehow. Has Omicron like presented any like specific challenges or like a different approach to it? Or is it just that, you know, or has it made like the entire thing more serious? Because I know Omicron, like sometimes the symptoms are, it's way easier to spread and the symptoms might not, symptoms might not be as bad. So is that, is that like caused you guys to change your approach at all? Or is it mostly the same? It, it's caused one change in that, um, from the, from the standpoint of testing, the PCR test we use, the Omicron variant has mutations in the S gene that affect the ability of the PCR to detect the S gene. So one of the three genes uh, that we screen is, um, is affected. So we've gotten in the habit of looking, scanning our data constantly to keep, it, keep track and make sure we're not overlooking something. Um, it also means we're, we knew we knew from almost the moment that Omicron showed up on campus because we could see it in the PCR results. Usually you don't know if you've got a new variant unless you take the viral genetic material and sequence it, um, which can take a day or more to get the sequence. But we can tell um, just by the effect on the PCR that Omicron arrived on campus probably, probably sometime in mid to late November um, and then just sort of took off just as we were winding down the semester and almost in the clear. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, that's, that's all of our questions. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, it's been really, really great to hear all of your insight into testing at BC because I, I personally, I'm, I'm so like, I, I wish I could know more and this, this really cleared it all up. So thank you. Could I, could I leave you with a closing thought if that's possible? Sure. Definitely. Yeah, um, I think the it, it's about vaccines. And I think this is important every time one of somebody like myself gets a chance to speak to people about it. I mean, I'm obviously pro-vaccination, but I, I think there's an element of this that's sometimes overlooked that what makes vaccines different from everything, from other kinds of treatment. And it's that the more successful vaccine it is, it suffers from its own success, right? A very effective vaccine means nobody knows that they got infected. 
right? And I think that's where the perception comes from, as opposed to a drug or getting surgery or something like that. You feel bad, now you feel better. You know that the drug worked, you know that the surgery worked. What a lot of us don't realize is by getting that vaccine, we've contributed to this process. The, the, the vaccines that have been rolled out have quite literally now saved probably millions and millions of lives around the world. Multiply those, that, those millions by 10, and that's the number of people who haven't been hospitalized because of the vaccine. So it's a negative result, right? We're not out there measuring how many people could have gotten infected. We're inferring that. And I, I think it's important for people to remember that as, as the vaccines do their job, they're going to suffer from the fact that we don't think that we have a problem, but that's because they're doing such a good job of preventing that problem. Yeah, that's definitely a good message. And it's reflected in BC's, like, you know, strict mandates with, with the vaccine because just how yeah. effective it is. Can I, can I ask you as a freshman, how has your year gone so far? My year's been good. Um, everything's like, honestly, way more normal than I would have expected, you know, because with COVID, there's so much uncertainty, like you're pretty nervous going into the year as yeah. a freshman. But I mean, you know, there's, I really can't complain about everything. Like, I'm pretty happy with how everything's been. I mean, you're the same. You must be the same age as my daughter. Her senior year in high school is very strange. Yeah, my entire senior yeah. year was online. So yeah. compared to that, like BC, it's like, oh, back to normal, you know. So this is a nice, I, I think I'm, I really like what BC has done. I think a lot of students, even though everybody's anxious, a lot of students have been grateful, especially the ones that experienced the complete shutdown. Mm-hmm. for for the fact that they can now have college and at least see friends and work with interact with their friend groups and things like that exactly yeah hopefully we can keep it that way mm-hmm. but yeah um if you don't have anything else i think uh amen if you don't have anything else uh thank you once again uh dr johnson uh it was great great hearing about all your insight into testing and just covid in general oh yeah it's been a been a pleasure to talk to both of you hopefully i'll get to see you guys in person yeah, by that, the that'd, biology that'd be great. department when you're back on campus and yeah play. that'd be fun let's let's talk in 3d <laughs> yeah. we'll have we'll have a follow-up episode don't worry right yeah good idea yeah. well enjoy the rest of your break see you in a couple you too weeks. thank you you too thanks again uh dr johns for joining us we hope everyone enjoyed this interview and at least learned one thing about COVID 19 and thanks again for listening to eagle eye catch us on our next episode